What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Talk Recorded okay. live. Okay. You go, my friend.
Good morning, Northern Maine. Welcome to the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, the Conscience of Maine. Broadcast today, Maine and worldwide on the TalkShoe Radio Network. Just Google Northern Maine Landman on TalkShoe and it'll pop up. You'll see my smiling face on there. Today is March 10th, 2018, and there's much going on in the world. We, uh, Blue sky and sunshine in northern Maine as the snow is tapering off further north up in the middle of Arusta County. They got several inches last night. And we got more coming first part of the week. We keep, keep one one after another. We have these huge storms down Washington, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, New York, Boston, and Portland, Maine, all the way up the Atlantic coast, had 50-mile-an-hour winds or more at the same time last week. Did a lot of shoreland damage, and there was a sloop that was uncovered down near Portland, one of the beaches. And every couple of decades or so, the storms are so violent that the sand gets washed right away out into the into the ocean. And then over time, since summer, the sand will be back. The wave action and the tides push the sand up, and the beach will be back. It's mother nature at work. But the ribs of that old colonial 1776 uh, sloop uh, show every every couple of decades or so, and they run out and they take a bunch of measurements and and uh, <clears throat> photographs. They learn about them. Those old sloops uh, were the fastest sailing ships in the world at that time. And then, after after Lexington and Concord, there was a uh, a packet ship. Now a packet was bigger than a sloop, but it was much smaller than the old clipper ships. The packet was the fastest freighter in the world, and most of them were made in Maine, and with some made in Massachusetts, and probably a few. Right there at the mouth of the river between Maine and New Hampshire is uh, what is now Portsmouth Naval Shipyard, and so-called because Portsmouth is simply a bigger town than Kittery, but it's actually on the main side. And they made packets. And after Lexington and Concord, they hired the Quero, Q-U-E-R-O, was the, was the name of the ship. I don't know if that was somebody's name or, or just a, a common uh, term used at that time for something. I don't know what Quero means. I could probably look it up. Don't have time at the moment. Something I ought to do, I guess. And that they hired the owner of the Quero to carry uh, tabloids. A tabloid was a sheet of paper about 15 inches by. 25 inches, roughly, that they printed newspapers on. Just a single sheet. They didn't print the backside. They just printed a single-faced uh, bulletin. It was called a tabloid. And the cheaper papers today are called tabloids. And the accuracy is somewhat questionable. But now, the way things are in this world, all Newspaper articles are somewhat suspect. You really need to look at it. Got some friends up in Worcester County that are pretty skeptical, shall I say, about about uh, the news that we see. Anybody can be a, a, a newspaper man today. You can publish. You can start a blog, and you have your own blog on on the air. And, People look at it. And they're interested. I, uh, I've got a Facebook page. That uh, in fact, I got two Facebook pages. Anyway, we uh, the Quero went to London with these multiple sheets of paper. There was no paper manufactured in North America on April nineteenth, seventeen seventy-five, and there was no. Uh, no gunpowder 
manufactured in North America. Gunpowder came from Belgium, France, England, and Spain. That was it at that time. And the Spanish wouldn't sell them to anybody else. They kept them for themselves. Well, the, uh, the newspapers arrived in London, and they, they contacted some people in London that they knew were favorable to the American uh, colonies. And they knew that the king was really pressuring the American colonies, and that sooner or later there was going to be uh, an insurrection. The colonies were going to rise up against the authority of the crown. And, you know, it was, the clock was ticking. Sooner or later it was going to happen. And it happened on April 19, 1775. And the printing press in Boston, there was only one printing press in Boston at the time. And it had been moved from Boston to Worcester because they knew that the, that the Redcoats would not go on more than a day's march uh, out of Boston spend to try to spend the night in an encampment because they knew that wasn't going to be a good idea. So they, the printing press was moved from Boston to Worcester along with a bunch of paper, these sheets. And these, these tabloids were printed in Worcester. And the Cueros sailed from, from uh, well, someplace north of Boston, maybe Gloucester or someplace up there, one of the ports, Salem, uh, a bunch of ports, nice little harbors north of Boston. The mouth of the Merrimack River that runs in there is, uh, not sure which town that is, but there's plenty of good harbors up there, and that's where the Quero sailed from. The Quero could outrun any British warship in the world. The only way it could harm, they could be harmed is if they anchored somewhere, but they sailed and went to London. They arrived three weeks before the first British warship got there. So it took three weeks longer sailing across the Atlantic to bring the, bring the report to London. And the sheet that was printed uh, was highly favorable. It was accurate. They, they didn't tell any, any falsehoods, but it was highly accurate as to what happened that day and that the British had had a very bad day and they they called it the running flight of the regulars. <laughs> they, they fled the colonists. The British Army was not in the, in the habit of fleeing anything. But they fled that day because between midnight on the 18th and sunset on the 19th, 14,000 men-at-arms responded. And they came from, from as far away as southern New Hampshire and as far away as Rhode Island. And nobody from Connecticut came up that day. But they showed up later, and they came from all over to come to Bunker Hill. George Washington arrived up there, and he referred to the, the colonials in the greater Boston area as a bunch of ragamuffins. <laughs> they were no two alike. I mean, they had all kinds of different firearms. They had fouling pieces, you know, light shotguns that were made, meant to fire birdshot. They could fire a round ball also. But they were all cast iron. And the ones made in the colonies were cast iron uh, muskets. And in order to make the musket lighter, they used thinner barrels. So, and they couldn't, they knew they couldn't, put a full charge and a ball in there without blowing up the without blowing it up so they put a light charge in with a ball and the muzzle velocity was quite low and they uh, but they were effective I mean you you could cause nobody's going to drop dead instantly from being fired by hit by one of those unless they were hit, hit in the head which is highly unlikely very inaccurate very few of those muskets had front sights and it was the whole the whole thing was like uh was like uh more of a riot than a or a brawl. <laughs> you know, an ugly brawl. <laughs>
Somebody once said that artillery lends dignity to what would otherwise be an ugly brawl. And after Lexington and Concord, General Knox said, we are going to need cannons. And there's a whole lot of cannons over at Fort Ticonderoga. And there was a very small British force uh, of British Army regulars at Ticonderoga, and they went there, and they didn't they didn't shoot the place up. They just snuck up on them during the night, charged in there, and de- defeated the small British force that was there. I don't know the casualties involved, but they they seized all the cannons. Cannons are heavy. What are you going to do with them? They had to go through a forest to get there. And they they had bought all the oxen they could find in western Massachusetts and Connecticut. And they brought the oxen up there, and they had ox teams pulling ox carts, big heavy wheels, with a cannon in each ox cart. And the gun carriages. And they... They were probably like field guns, you know, big wheels on the gun carriages. And some of the guns could be towed on their own gun carriages. And they had caissons. The caisson was a small wagon where where uh, that hauled gunpowder and cannonballs and fuses to uh, keep the cannons going. So they hauled all those cannons back over the Adirondacks into Massachusetts across the Connecticut River. They had to build rafts to cross the Connecticut River to float the cannons across, and it had to be a big enough raft or big enough bateaus and longboats to float the cannons across because a cannon would sink the average raft unless it was dry wood. Most dry wood got used up for lumber, log cabins, or firewood. So they used fresh-cut lumber to build those rafts. They probably stacked them up in layers until they could, until it would support a cannon, and pulled them across with long ropes and cables. It was quite an expedition. They call it the Knox Expedition. Then they came. Once they got across the Connecticut River, they continued across the Berkshires. And following valleys for the most part, and they come up through western Massachusetts. Eventually, they got to Lexington and Concord, and they continued on into Boston. And they set up a fort and breastworks. And the British never were never able to leave Boston by land after April 19, 1775. And what they did is. Uh, the colonials set up a few cannons up there. And then one morning, the British woke up and they looked up there on Bunker Hill, actually Breed's Hill, beside Bunker Hill, but you know, that's that's a fact. Everybody calls it Bunker Hill, so I will for the moment. And they, they looked up there, and there were like 80 cannons up there pointed down at the, at the ships in Boston Harbor. Now, the British knew they couldn't leave by land because they still had thousands of colonials out there waiting for them, just hoping they would try to come out of Boston. Boston was an island. There were only two ways out of Boston, one if by land, two if by sea, and I on the opposite shore will be. Well, there was one neck uh, that went out across there, and they couldn't march out against that. And the, the breastworks and the fortress that they'd built, they had all the parts and all the logs and everything ready to go. Sunset one day, and I don't recall the exact date, but it was in the spring of 1776. And companies and militias had come come from all over. Because most of the British troops in the colonies were bottled up in Boston at that time. And they couldn't leave by land. So the British realized, they looked up there, and there were all these cannons pointed down at their ships, and they knew if the ships were sunk, they were dead meat. 
There's no place they could go. So, and the ships could fire up at Bunker Hill, but the, the ships weren't really equipped to fire up at high angles. They fired meant to fire point blank at other ships rather close by. So the the uh, they decided they would leave. And half the after Redcoats sailed off to Halifax, Nova Scotia, the other half sailed down to Long Island to attack George Washington and all the troops that were assembled on Long Island right beside New York because there was quite a garrison of of uh, Redcoats in New York on Manhattan Island. So there they were. They were on Boston Island and Manhattan Island. But George Washington went across onto Long Island and defeated the colonials on Long Island. They went across. They escaped during the night across to Connecticut, leaving the Redcoats on Long Island. They were kind of stuck there in a similar situation tactically to what was in Boston. They were stuck on an island, but it was a big island. Long Island is big. I don't know how long it is, but it's it goes all the way along the coast of Connecticut. But the only way back and forth is by boat. So you may have there was quite a, a television series about a spy two years ago. <coughs> Excellent series on public radio. So, anyway, that's that's what happened. I teach this so I can do this at the drop of a hat. Uh, and much, much more. <laughs> Excuse me. Now, We've had some real calamities in our country lately. It may seem to be chaotic. We had a, a young girl, 10 years old, was beaten to death by her parents, actually her mother and the mother's boyfriend. And they're pointing fingers back and forth as to whose fault this was. And, and uh, they had a... They had a uh, Somebody started one of these donation pages on the internet. I'm not sure what they're called, but they raised enough money to to bury the girl. The girl's body was taken to New York State to the home of her grandparents, or to hometown, and they they held a a, a wake. And she's the funeral is going to be today or tomorrow uh, in New York State. My grandparents loved that little girl, and they had hoped to continue to care for her, but Mom had the legal rights, and she and her boyfriend came to Maine. Better welfare benefits in Maine. The girl lived in Bangor for a while with her mom and her boyfriend. And I'm just picking this information out of the newspaper articles, which have to be taken with a grain of salt. But I know the superintendent of schools in Bangor, and without mentioning her name, she had her school report the conditions that this girl was living in and the fact that she had been beaten. It was reported to the Department of Health and Human Services. And the Department of Health and Human Services failed utterly and miserably to intervene in this girl's situation. Ten-year-old girl, enthusiastic, happy, bright. Teacher said she was smart. She had everything going for her except for the fact that her parents were incompetent. Um, My hesitation is caused by... (laughs) my requirement that I avoid profanity. And I I don't use profanity. Uh, I, uh, something will happen once in a great, great while and I'm by myself and I say a cuss word if something disagreeable or unfortunate happens, like something falls off the jack, you know. <laughs> uh, 
I might use a, use a bad word, but this doesn't happen very often. Uh, usually not in public. So this girl's death was a tragedy and a black mark on main state government. The first rule of government is that we need to protect our citizens. We need, our citizens need to live in a safe environment. And when people commit crimes, uh, you know, they should be incarcerated for that crime or fined as, as, as appropriate. And they, uh, the problem is that the legislature creates laws and with usually with good intent. Sometimes you get some some old meanie who just wants to create a law to inflict uh, abuse on his neighbors. There was a legislator a while back, 10 or 12 years ago, who neighbor down in along the coast in one of the coastal harbor communities who put in a circular driveway at his house so he could drive his car up to the front door, open the door, let his wife out so he could walk in. Or he could pull in the other way and pull up to the doorway and he'd get out and walk in. Just the, like five feet to his doorway. He had this circular driveway. Well, that's not the way they did it back in the colonial era. So one of the town fathers down there tried to get a town ordinance passed to prevent people from putting in circular driveways. This isn't going to help anybody. This is over, this is government overreach. But this guy really wanted to do that, and the town council wouldn't even go for it. So he ran for the legislature. And the first bill he put in the legislature was to prevent anybody from having more than two driveways. And it, you know, so this was back during the George Bunker era, 20 years ago. And they had a a law or a proposed bill that would prevent a landowner from having more than one driveway. So I... uh, I went down and I testified against this because Great Northern had 17 miles of woods on Route 11 down south of Ashland, almost almost down to Patton. And what this law says is that Great Northern can only have one driveway for 17 miles. And he's going to have to put in a road parallel with Route 11 build bridges across all those brooks and swamps so that they can only have one entrance on the Route 11 in 17 miles. That's what this bill says. Oh, well, we could modify it. They would make excuses and all this stuff. No. That's what the bill says. It's going to be voted up or voted down. Well, the Republicans down there were real happy that I pointed this out because they were focusing on this poor fellow down there in Falmouth Foresight or someplace. Freeport, I don't know where it was, someplace down on the coast. And this one guy who had a grudge against his neighbor did not want him to have two driveways on his house lot. But that's not what the law said. you got to think about what you write down. And I was doing some research just this week on the Bangor Daily News on July 16, 1998. It said forestry rules spark opposition. I'm going to read this. I don't read much on this show, but I'm going to read this one. July 6th, so it's coming up. Four months from now, it would be the 20th anniversary of this thing. And the title is Bangor Daily News, Thursday, July 16th, 1998. Forestry rules spark opposition. This was written by a lady named Susan Kinsey, the news staff in Augusta. She wrote it for the Bangor Daily News. 
proposed state forestry rules intended by officials to clarify and simplify the existing logging law were greeted with contempt Wednesday by environmentalists and land rights activists as either ridiculously lax or dangerously extreme. Now, I was there. I testified against that bill. I got there and got my turn at the microphone, and I had... I was ready for him. I had my three minutes. I used them wisely. Turned around, and there's all my friends in the log industry sitting up in the, in the back row, watched me do this. And I didn't even know they were there. They walked in after I did. I was up near the front. Jonathan Carter, clear-cutting opponent, said the new clear-cutting standards weren't worth the paper they were printed on. And then Helen Gordon, a property rights activist, complained, the rules would just promulgate boxes of paperwork. Now, Helen Gordon lived down on the coast. I'm going to interrupt this thing from time to time. Helen Gordon and Tom Gordon lived down on the coast, and she used to publish a newspaper called Fishery Facts. And it was all about the fishery and about the fishermen. And this one particular fisherman had had really good catches. It was... Uh, and they had a good getting a good price for the fish, and then another fisherman had a leaky boat and had to haul his boat out and fix it, and it was very expensive, and he wasn't making any money. And he was hard up against it. And then talking about the fish prices in the market down in Portland. Portland, the main the main maritime enforcement arm made it so hard for Maine's main boats to fish in Maine waters that they all started going down to Gloucester and selling their fish down there in the Portland Fish Exchange. And the Portland Fish Market is pretty much went out of business because of the state of Maine rules. Maine legislature tends to be hostile to Maine business, sometimes intentionally and sometimes by blunder. But you have to look at this thing and say, the best, the best approach to a bill before the legislature or a new rule put out by the bureaucracy is then what? If we do this, what happens? Well, I'm kind of good at that. Say, so if, if this is what this actually says, do you want to do this to people? So Chuck Gadzik director of the Maine Forest Service said the proposed rules were meant to make the Forest Practices Act easier to comply and enforce. No, it wasn't easier. That, that's just a, let's try to sweeten it and make it, make it seem better. And then Jim St. Pierre, Maine director of Restore, the North Woods, that they're tweaking things a little bit. Looks like they're making things a little looser in some areas, a little more stringent in other areas, but not in any way improving the protection of the forest. Well, every now and then one of these environmentalists makes a correct statement. And this didn't wasn't going to help the forest. Whether you look at it as a commercial forest, or whether you look at it as, you know, John Smith's woodlot, it, you know, it's... <laughs> These people are the ones that are watching out for vernal pools. You know, they got a rule in Maine. If you want to build something, you have to have, you have to certify. If it's within a quarter mile of, of a vernal pool, you've got to certify that this particular pool doesn't have any fairy shrimp or certain kinds of salamanders and stuff. They have vernal pool inspectors that come out when the water temperature reaches a certain point. In May, they come out and inspect that pool looking for egg masses for certain salamanders, certain kinds of frogs and toads and whatnot. And then they say, okay, well, the, <clears throat> these egg masses are not from that particular kind of salamander, so you, so you can build your cabin or your house or your logging road or whatever. This is a rule. This, the state does this. And they the legislators, I bet you, Probably none of the legislators that voted for this thing understood that this, you had a two-week window and there aren't enough salamander egg inspectors in the state of Maine to do them all. 
So the guy's got to wait three or four years before he can build his, his house. Because there's not enough salamander egg inspectors that are certified by the state of Maine. You can't make this stuff up. They need some adult supervision down there. So, the Maine Forest Service told the committee members they were having trouble enforcing the rules because they're so confusing. Well, guess what? The legislature didn't make them confusing. The legislature passed rules, excuse me, the legislature passed laws, and they hand the law to the the administrators and the bureaucrats, and they write the rules. And they go right around the bend, away from the intent of the law, writing these new rules. Because the new rules are written by the environmental industry. We get dozens of different environmental industries in the state of I mean organizations in the state of Maine. Most of them were put into the state government by Angus King back in 1992, 93, 94, that era. They went berserk, writing all kinds of rules. And they also passed a law that, you know, people were coming to Maine from other states, then from southern Maine, coming up to northern Maine, and they build a camp in the woods. Well, the environmental industry calls that sprawl. They're building camps in the woods. Well, we'll fix them. We'll say you can't build a camp unless it's on 40 acres. Subdivision had to have 40 acres. That'll fix them. We had huge subdivisions. Sam Rowe Ridge in the town of Prentice was the Sam Rowe Farm 100 years ago. And it was a dairy farm. It used to be, I would see two dairy trucks go by the house every day, headed out and coming back. Two tractor trailers hauling milk for hood. They're gone. I don't know where the nearest dairy cow is, but the rules and regulations for the state of Maine put the dairy farmers out of business. They have put all kinds of different industries out of business. Environmentalists would hope that everybody's going to make sell crafts out there front lawn with windmills and stuff and tourists to buy. Guys that used to be paper makers. They could support a family, go on vacations, send their kids to college. And this their rules have actually broken up families. They just weren't able to make it as a family anymore. Wrong. It's virtually criminal. So they wanted permits for clear cuts on more than 75 acres. Well, that's a quarter of a mile by a third of a mile is 75 acres, roughly. Quarter mile square is 40 acres. Quarter mile by half a mile is 75 acres, thereabouts. And then you have to convince the state that it's a legitimate reason, like severe weather damage, like after 1998 ice storm. There was huge damage to our forests and private woodlots. I own some old-growth forest. And a 92-year-old lady told me when I bought it that that was the home place. Her father-in-law told her it had never been cut. Well, how old would the lady's father-in-law be? about 130 years old, if you were alive. And I, when I bought the place, you walk through the woods and there's, there's no stumps. You know, nobody ever cut wood in there. The only wood that I cut is, is uh, yeah, standing dead wood. So you get a, a beech tree or birch or something and, it lost out in the race for sunlight and nutrition and died. You know, the tree starved to death. Trees started as a little sprout and grew up as a sapling and grew up to be what they call pole wood. And then as it got bigger and bigger, it starved to death. There wasn't enough water, sunlight, and nutrition. And it died. So those are the trees I cut for firewood. 
I'll cut them to be five, six inches diameter, eight inches sometimes. And most of them, you don't have to split. It makes it kind of convenient when you put them in the wood stove. So I got this old growth, and it's it's nice. I've got another piece that that I have I have cut, and uh, I let my next door neighbor was a national champion logger one year. Went out to Ohio to the national championships and won it. And uh, he's good at what he does. <clears throat> he invented the uh, the safety cut that allows a tree to be precisely felled. And, uh, you know, traditionally what you do is you saw in halfway through a tree approximately and saw down from above, and you create a notch in the tree, and you saw in from the back, and the tree falls down pretty much where you want it. The safety cut is you saw in part way, but you come up from the bottom, and uh, you hinge. Well, you still put the tree in the same spot. This guy went out to the, <laughs> to the Pacific Northwest, and those loggers out there move logs off steep slopes with sky cranes. These are a six-bladed helicopter, heavy lift. And there's not a thing on that helicopter that isn't needed. They keep that weight down on that helicopter as much as possible. And they'll, they've got guys that put choker chains on these logs, and they, they lower the long cable down from the helicopter, let it touch the ground so the static electricity doesn't knock the, the choker guy flying on his butt. Hook it up and they, they'll pick up this log and they'll either, if the sawmill is right there, they'll take it to the sawmill. Otherwise, they'll take it down and set it on the riverbank and a skidder will push it into the, into the river. Let, let it float down the river. And they still do that. That's the most efficient way to move water is to let it float downstream. They made them stop that in in Maine, because environmentalists said, well, you know, it'll hurt the bugs, and some of the bark might rub off. So they they just, uh, they made them stop floating logs down the river and forced Great Northern to build a golden road. Golden road is so-called because of the cost it took to, it took to build it. Not because of the opportunity to make money, because they could make more money by floating the logs down the river. So, I've told recently the reason that that uh, Domtar uh, wanted all the forest gone before they bought the mill in Woodland. It's simply because they weren't able to manage the resource because of Maine Forest Service, Land Use Regulation Commission, and work. I stood in the boardroom of Dantar in Montreal, fourth or fifth floor up in the air, looking down over the St. Lawrence River, and, and I spoke, the president of Dantar came in. Now he had, this guy was a president of a corporation that owned a lot of paper mills in Canada. Dom Tower and Abitibi Price were the two big ones up there. And they, we had a discussion about the mill and woodland. And they ended up buying it. I wish I had a piece of that action. But I, I wasn't involved in the, in the purchase, but I did tell them that woodland was a good mill. Based on, I visited there a number of times on business. And, and they bought it. But they sold 425,000 acres in Washington County. And that whole 425,000 acres was purchased by an outfit called Hancock Trust. It has nothing to do with that fine main family that runs Hancock Lumber. Hancock Trust is a retirement investment arm of Yale University and they're green as grass, and they put a conservation easement on it where nobody will ever build a home or a camp, boarding lodge, sugar shack for boiling down maple syrup, nothing. No boathouses, 
no docs, nothing. But the economic heart right out of Washington County. That's a side effect of oppressive government. And New England people, Lexington and Concord, various other places, Maine, don't like oppressive government. Government is too big, too oppressive. Now, for the past eight years, Paula Page has been down there, and he's done a fairly good job. Not perfect. But I was Paula Page's very first town chairman when he ran. When he was 15 years old, he was working in the stables in Lewiston, at the old Lewiston Raceway, which is gone now. When I was 15, I was working in a dairy farm, cleaning up behind the cows. And I said, Paul, you had the better job. Why is that? I said, well, horse manure doesn't splash. Cow manure does. That wasn't the word I chose for the waste that that, that, that night. But but uh, on the air, I'll call it manure. Reminds me of the old farmer over in New Hampshire. And, uh, you know, some summer people came, and they wanted to board their horses in New Hampshire for the winter so that they didn't uh, have to bring them back down to Connecticut and buy hay down there because hay is expensive in Connecticut. They figured they'd leave the horses up there. Come visit the horses from time to time, maybe take a ride in the wintertime, you know. They wanted to board the horses. They went to one farmer, and he says, well, how much do you charge? He says, $60 in manure. Okay. What they did is they they would keep the manure and use the manure on their own fields. And some people wanted the manure from their horse to put it on their, own, their field. So that was the deal. It was sixty dollars a manure. Okay, went to another guy, and, and uh, he wanted eighty dollars a manure. So he went to the third farmer, and he said, "Well, how much would you charge to board these horses?" He says, thirty dollars. Thirty dollars. He said, "Well, what about the manure? That's stuff. When you board a horse." $30, you don't get manure. <laughs> True story. You can't make this stuff up. The legislators have been asking me to go run, run for the main house. One of them asked me to run for the main Senate. But I I don't think I could defeat Mike Carpenter. He was a, he was a secretary of state or something down there. And I think the chances of beating him are in a race for a slam. Had a real good man running against him. Mike Carpenter beat him by 20 votes, and he had been in the legislature already. So uh, they've been bugging me and bugging me. You ought to run. You know about, about this stuff. I don't have to look this stuff up. I know what happened. I know the history. I know the harm that government does to people. And some of these people down there are doing this because they think it's going to help. They listen to the environmentalists and say, oh, this would be a good thing. Well, everybody wants clean air and clean water. And nobody says, you know, you get a guy drives halfway across the bridge out on some logging road, changes his oil, dumps the oil right in the, right in the brook, and puts the plug back in and fills up his is pick up with new oil. Okay, don't do that. I mean, everybody, the whole world should know that's wrong. Don't dump oil into the brook. <clears throat> so, or or in the dirt road, you know, you know, scratch a little hole, dump dump the oil in there, and cover it over with sand. Don't do that. But every single gallon of chainsaw bar oil that was ever sold went with the sawdust in the woods or in your dooryard when you're cutting up firewood to be split to go in the cellar. Every single gallon of chainsaw bar oil ever sold went on the ground. That isn't harmful. It's a natural thing. It will oxidize and it will accelerate the rot 
of the sawdust. But no animal's going to get poisoned. No bugs are going to get killed. You know, it's just part of the world. Most of most of the hydraulic fluid that gets sold in the state of Maine leaks out. You know, skidders tend to be leaky. And a little bit of it leaks out of those hydraulic cylinders on a skidder and leaks out around the seals on the PTO shaft and it drips. But it's scattered enough that it doesn't do any great amount of harm anywhere. Once in a while you blow a hose and a whole lot of oil goes all over the place till they get it shut down. I mean, gallons of oil. That ought to be cleaned up to the extent that it's possible. You're not going to get every speck of it, every ounce of it. But if you have a, a major spill, the spill needs to be cleaned up. You don't need to call the DEP to do it. If you're a good, responsible citizen, you're going to clean up your own mess. You don't need to call the DEP. But if you have a truck roll over on the interstate that's loaded with petroleum and it rolls over, you know, you want to get some bales and mats and absorbent stuff and vacuum cleaners and all kinds of stuff up there to keep a large amount of water of petroleum from either going into the ground or going into the brook, going into the river or somebody's well. Common sense will take care of all of these situations. I think they need somebody down there with some common sense, some knowledge of the history and a harm that's been done by government over the years. Government does good stuff. Plow the roads, pave the roads, put up guardrails so people don't wind up upside down the brook when they slide off the road on a curve. Down on Route 6, down near Topsfields, a car skidded, went off the road, landed upside down the brook. A lady got out and standing there screaming, and a forester pulled up. A young forester, about 26, 28 years old. I know it. And uh, I recall his first name. Last name is Shorey. He jumped out, opened up the rear door on this vehicle. It was upside down and the wheels were sticking up. This guy's up to his chest in the water, opened the door, got the baby out of there, and did CPR on the baby, and the baby made it. He saved the life of that baby. He jumped in that ice-cold water up to his chest, got the baby out. The baby was blue, probably because of, well, he had blue because of poor circulation. The woman wanted to take the baby. No, we got to do CPR on this baby, you know. And and he did. And the baby made it. No brain damage. Perfectly healthy little kid. A, a mainer taking, doing what's necessary. A young forester named Shory got that done. That's a wonderful thing. Mainers, most mainers have, you know, Common sense. Common sense isn't as common as it used to be. Common courtesy is not as common as it used to be. We can recover from this. We need to teach common sense and common courtesy in schools. They used to do that. I'm on a school board. I was on the state committee for the Republican Party. I'm on a county committee. I'm on the state committee now. I'm on the county committee. I'm on the town planning board. I'm on the school board. The people ask me to do these things. It's not some career choice that I've made that they, you know, I think I ought to be involved in all these things. It's just that every single time somebody's come to me and said, will you do this? My first public office ever was 1974. I was I was elected to the planning board in the town of Verona, down there in the middle of the river, in the Penobscot River, beside Bucksport. And uh, and that bridge goes across from Waldo to Hancock County, Waldo-Hancock Bridge. They took it down, built a new one. 
and I, that's the first time I became involved in, in any public office. You know, they, I figured the planning board was just a bunch of people in town that helped the plan to help the town plan to do stuff. You know, I just honestly I didn't know, but I I learned fast, and government can be beneficial, and government can be oppressive. We've got to find a way to make government less oppressive and more beneficial. They waste a huge amount of money, locally, county, state, and federal. An awful lot of money gets wasted. We'd be better off if money had not been spent. They hired a guy, the federal government hired a guy to come up here and spent three hours paving the way for this Katahdin Woods National Monument. $165,000 a year, and they bought him, they rented an office and got him a desk. He, he was paid $165,000 a year for three years to pave the way to get this done. That's a lot of money. That's over half a million dollars that they paid this guy to be a PR man for the Katahdin Woods and Waters National Monument. Should not have done that. So, legislators have been asking me to run for the main house. And I finally said yes. They will be down. But I might maybe they may have won me down, but I'm not tired out. And I put my papers in and I'm running for the main house in District 141. District 141 goes from Chester, Maine, on the west side of the Penobscot River, all the way east of Ansboro, on the Canadian border. And it goes from Mattawamkeag, Maine, diagonally across the district, all the way down to to uh, the salt water, all the way to the ocean. It's the biggest district in the state of Maine. There's about 50 different towns, and there's a whole bunch of numbered townships uh, that don't have names. And right in the middle of that whole thing is that 425,000 acres that where you can never do anything. Or you can cut a little wood, but you can't ever build a camp or a house. That, I know the history of that. I was there when the president of Domtar, in the boardroom of Domtar Incorporated, said that they weren't going to make the same mistake that Need made. Now, I've got just enough time in this hour. George Bunker put the bill in. And George Bunker was the chairman of the committee. He lived in this district. He was the representative from this district. And... I know Barry Gillis, who served as representative. I took Everett McLeod to his very first Republican caucus in Princeton. And George Bunker did this. And when they realized what had happened, they picked him off. The, he was no longer chairman of the committee, and he became a backbencher. But uh, Alan Gordon was down on the coast. And she published fishery notes. Robbie McKay published uh, a newsletter for for an organization advocating for Northern Maine, Unorganized Territories United. And Robbie McKay made the statement 20 years ago this year when Pierre when Saint Pierre wanted to ban clear cutting. Property rights activist Robbie McKay said she saw more government intrusion. She said, this issue is going to keep going until the environmental industry drives out the paper industry. She said that 20 years ago. She was right. We were all right. The environmentalists have been killing industry in this state. And that's a fact. George Bunker... Democrat of Kasuth Township, population 16 at the time, told committee members they were having trouble enforcing the rules because they were so confusing. 
George Bunker owned a log cabin restaurant in Kasuth, and they they harvested a little bit too close to his property line, and he went to war against the paper industry. That's a fact. That's how this happened. He was just mad at the paper industry because the loggers had cut trees near his property. He only owned a couple of acres. So they had public hearings about this thing at Oxford Hills High School, Ellsworth Middle School, University of Maine at Presque Isle, Augusta Civic Center. I went to several of these, and ultimately they passed it. And most of the small to medium-sized logging contractors have gone out of business. And it's not because the new, the new harvesters are so efficient. It's because you can't do what you need to do to manage the forest effectively. I am running for District 141. I know the history. I know where the skeletons are buried. And they can't hide from the truth. I know the truth. There are legislators down there that are begging me to run. Other legislators are hoping don't run. When I was elected to the state committee recently, again, I've, done, I've been on and off the state committee a number of times. I've never really gone after it. They just ask me to serve, and I'm willing to serve. And I went down to uh, just west of Augusta. They had a state committee meeting at a fire station down there. And I went down and they ask each new state committee member to introduce themselves. I said, my name is Roger Eck, elder from Northern Penobscot, defender of liberty, and fine judge of onion soup. And he's old God, he's back. <laughs> they know that I know. And I have the facts. I don't have to look them up. And a lot of times I do have to look them up. But when I do, I read 1,200 words a minute. And when I run up into a lie, it brings me to a screeching halt. And I make a note of it. Because there are an awful lot of lies floating around out there, I'll tell you. Down to Augusta yesterday with my petitions. I am running for District 141. It goes all the way from Mattawamkeg, Maine, to Cobbs Cook Bay, saltwater. All the way from Chester, Maine, east of Ansboro, largest district in the state. This district has been hurt severely by state government. I hope to remedy some of that. God bless, be safe, and I'll see you next week.